Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. It's a brand new year, and what better time to get going with that online store you've been thinking of. Those I was there when Arsenal actually scored a goal t-shirts would fly off the shelves right now. And to get yourself up and running, you need Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way through to the did we hit a million order stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms, and sell more with less effort with thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Sign up for a $1 a month trial period at shopify.com slash arsblog, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash arsblog now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash arsblog. Jorginho, Averts. Bien fait. Zinchenko. De garde qui rejoue avec Kaya C'est du 1 contre 1. Kaya face à Allison. Superbe Allison. Et Saka derrière qui réveille l'esprit conquérant des Gunners. Qui réveille également le caractère orgueilleux de cette équipe qui ne veut pas lâcher dans la course au titre. 1-0. Recherche de Martinelli, plein axe. Van Dijk. Oh là là, Allison s'est manqué. Et Martinelli profite de l'Oben. Incroyable action et but d'Arsenal qui reprend l'avantage. Oh, c'est comme s'ils avaient rendu la monnaie, les Gunners. Trossard, oh, 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 formidable. Oui. Leandro Trossard qui fonce vers la surface de réparation. Oh, oui. Trossard qui va frapper. Cette fois, c'est gagné pour Arsenal. Il y a de la rage, il y a comme une fureur, il y a beaucoup d'ardeur et un espoir renaissant. Arsenal revient dans la course. 3 buts 1. Just get down the tunnel, you've won a game, three points, they've been brilliant, they're back in the title race, get down the tunnel. I'm saying it's honestly. This is Arscast Extra. Hello and welcome to a brand new Arscast Extra, as always, with James from Gullen Blog. James, a very fucking goodly morning to you. Yes, goodly morning, Andrew. One of the goodliest. It a is. really good one this morning. But let's just get this straight from the start. I don't want any, you know, happiness. 
celebrations, mm. joy, enjoyment, uh, you know, no basking, none of that. We have to make that very clear from the top because that kind of thing is, is just not allowed. It's not permitted. It's, it, it goes against the very essence of the game of football that we all love. And we shouldn't even love football. We should just look at it and say, that was a game of football. It's time to go home. Just observe it. Yeah. Neutrally. Exactly. Andrew, can I tell you a quick story? Sure. Um, so yesterday, uh, for unconventional reasons, I had to drive to the game and park near-ish the ground. Okay. And that meant that yesterday, I, after full time, I dashed to my car, jumped in my car, and then promptly sat in traffic for about 45 minutes. Um, but I had the unusual distinction of listening to the phone-in show on Radio 5 Live, ah. um, which was hosted by uh, Robert Savage and Christopher Sutton. <laughs> And, <laughs> I was going, who's this presenter called Robert? I've never heard of him. Oh, mm, nice. Well, two gentlemen, two uh, ex-professionals uh, presenting the show. Mm-hmm. And one of them, the aforementioned Mr. Sutton, uh, very strongly took the position that he felt that Arsenal and principally Mikel Arteta had, inverted commas, over-celebrated. Um, and it's difficult for me, obviously, because, you know, I'm someone who works in football media. So when I talk about these people, there's obviously a risk that I will encounter them face to face. So I can only say Mm -hmm. things about them that I would be prepared to say to their face. So uh, on that note, may I just say what a cretinous, foolish, idiotic cunt Chris Sutton is. (laughs) (laughs) Honestly... What a pathetic, <laughs> miserable man. Oh, my God. <laughs> I, like, honestly, it, it, listening to him, I kept thinking about his great-great-great-grandchildren who one day will be like, my great-great-granddad was a footballer and he went to Chelsea and he was fucking shit. But he he did win the league once at Blackburn because they bought all the good players. And then after that... He went on the radio and he, he was a radio presenter. And I'm going to go back and I'm going to go on the iPlayer and listen to him <laughs> on the radio and see and be so proud of how good he was on the radio. And then they'll go to the iPlayer and they'll go back at 6.06. There he is, Chris Sutton and Robbie Savage. And they'll press play and they'll go, oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. My great, great. Great granddad was a fucking cunt. <laughs> he was a miserable old cunt trying to ruin everyone else's fun. Oh no! And they'll start crying. They'll be crying. Oh no! He was such a fucking cunt. And they'll just be inconsolable. And I, it's them I feel sorry for. <laughs> I knew we were going to get into this at some point, but this was very, very <laughs> unexpected. It's early, isn't it? It's early. It's early. It's early. I, think we'll, I think we'll come back to it, but I understand completely where you're coming from because, you know, he was far from alone in that kind of 
in that kind of vein yesterday. Uh, there was a, it was like there was a, a contagion going around the world of football punditry from Sky Sports to our old friend, Mr. Harry Hands sure. in, in Doha. Um, who who said Mikel Arteta should show more dignity. Um, I don't know, pots, kettles, all the rest of it. It's absolutely ludicrous. And of course, maybe not the only man, but the man who got it uh, spot on was, was Ian Wright. You know, talking about how people are trying to take the joy out of things and take the joy out of football. And this world is a... Is a, is a difficult place at the best of times. So when there is something to enjoy and something to experience and something to to take pleasure from, whether it's individual or, or communal or as part of a, a community of football fans, everyone should be able to do that without this sort of sneering, uh, holier-than-thou bollocks that comes from, you know, the people who are paid a huge amount of money to analyze games of football and who spent yesterday, for the most part, talking about people, uh, Mikel Arteta players, um, the manager, his staff, the Arsenal fans, getting excited because we won a really, really big game of football. Like, any fucking idiot can go on TV and do that. Yeah, But you, you're there. I mean, I think there is some, a more serious point about this, and maybe we will come back to it, but... It, it, it's kind of frustrating, as pathetic as it is, and we can all see it for what it is. There is more to discuss from a game of football like this than just how people celebrate it. It's, it's kind of lowest common denominator stuff. It is absolutely the lowest common denominator. I mean, listening to this phone and I was like, wow. This, I mean, genuinely, it felt like a program made for people with a, an incredibly low IQ. Like, it, it was astonishing. And I, I, I like I, I haven't listened to it in years, and I was like, I can't believe this is on a national broadcaster mm. on the radio. Like this is like every phone call was like a parody. It was like a sketch from the end of the Ask Cast. Do you know what I mean? It, like, <laughs> yeah. And there were just people ringing in, being like, I think it was wrong what Arteta did celebrating like that. And they'd be like, okay, and who do you support? And they'd be like, Liverpool, but that's not relevant. Like, it, it's just so transparent. And, uh, yeah, yeah I, 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 thought, I do think, like, why, why would someone want to be that sort of pundit? Like, why would you want to be someone who tramples on people's fun and sort of, you know, always brings a miserable perspective when life <laughs> is quite stressful and quite hard and these moments of pleasure and joy and release are what's brilliant about sport yeah and i i do think that's what people fundamentally miss it's like why do you think Mikel arteta celebrates so wildly because he has a job that is incredibly high pressure huge public scrutiny huge criticism if he fails when he wins he experiences enormous relief right and those people in those stands they all have things that are stressing them out in their life cost of living crisis you know mm. inflation personal issues health could be anything but they go to that stadium for a release and they get it and that's brilliant and it's healthy and it's what's great about football and why would you want to take that away i, I don't understand i don't understand as well you know particularly from 
you know, from people who've played the game, who understand that these moments in football are, are fleeting, that you know, you can celebrate wildly scoring a goal in the first minute, you end up on the wrong end of a 6-1 defeat. People don't go back or shouldn't go back and say, well, you shouldn't have celebrated that goal in the first minute. You know, they, they, they've been there, they've done that, they've worn the T-shirt, they've experienced it. I think it, what it is is just inherently lazy. I think mm. it, it's sort of, it's designed, one, to perhaps uh, wind up Arsenal fans and the media being what it is, there is a sense that you have to create engagement and, mm. you know, all that kind of stuff. And it is just easy as well at the end of the day, isn't it? It's easy to say, well, they celebrate a bit too much there. He shouldn't do that. He shouldn't run around. He shouldn't be happy. You know, look at him doing high fives as he's running along the, the touchline there. You know, tell me tell me about the performance. Tell me about the tactics. Tell me about what Arsenal did in this game, if you can tell me. Can you tell me? A lot of the time with, with, with these guys, they can't. And that's why they resort to this kind of thing. And I think what, what, what frustrates some Arsenal fans, I guess, is that other managers have behaved in exactly the same way as Mikel Arteta, and they're held up as as these sort of bastions of look at how much passion they have for the game, for their club, for their players, for their fans, and they're lauded for it, right? Mm. Uh, but when Arteta does it, it, it's sort of disrespectful. It's seen as disrespectful to the game or disrespectful to the opposition or, or whatever. I don't really understand why it is, you know, a Diego Simeone or even a Jurgen Klopp, when they do the things that they do, look at them. This is what football is all about. But when Mikel Arteta does it, it's, you know, it's, it goes against the grain in some way. I don't quite understand. I, I think that's a really simple one. I think you have to win. I think once you win... Uh, and I mean, when when I say win, I mean win the big, big prizes. Mm. Then the sort of the narrative turns, you know. Maybe. Yeah. But as, as long as you haven't, they can be like, you know, why they didn't? He punched the air too hard. <laughs> that, yeah, yeah. that can be the depth of their analysis That's until it. that point. Um, but who knows? Maybe we will win something big. I mean, certainly yesterday uh, puts us back into the conversation. One quick thing, other than that, yeah. I've got to say, Robbie Savage. He actually did defend the celebrations and made the point, look, in his own career, he didn't have a ton uh, to celebrate. And when <laughs> things came along that did, he absolutely went for it. Every goal, every game. Well, good for him. Is important. Um, and so I think that's why I'm angriest with Chris Sutton, because he made me agree with Robbie Sanders. Well, look, Chris Sutton is, has been miserable for a long, long time anyway. So it, it's it's just part of his... Uh, it's his It's part it's of his shtick. Imagine if Arsenal win the, the league this season they'll be there look at them celebrating like they've won the league mm. fucks you know <laughs> I, I really hope that happens just so we can just so we can hear that but look for whatever they say about Mikel Arteta for whatever they say about how he celebrates and um, you know what they think of those celebrations he orchestrated and and was in charge of a huge win yesterday for Arsenal like I thought it was really interesting that before the game, he was asked about, you know, the potential consequences of of defeat, because that would have given Liverpool an eight-point advantage. Mm -hmm. And, like, while it wouldn't have been mathematically over or anything like that, I think 
it would have been extremely unlikely that Arsenal could have, oh, you know, um, hauled in that 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 gap and and challenged for the title. So it was really, really important to win this game. Certainly very important not to lose it, but very important to win it as well. Cut that gap to two, blow the whole thing wide open again. And Arteta did that. Arteta, um, you know, his tactics were right. There's a, I think there's a through line to some degree or another between the fact that Liverpool didn't play particularly well, but also the way Arsenal's game plan was executed. I think you can say Liverpool had an off day. I don't think that would be unfair, but I also don't think it's right to completely ignore Arsenal's part in that. Oh, no, yeah. I think Arsenal, particularly in the first half, uh, I thought were excellent, you know, and and the game, I don't know, might have been won there were it not for a bit of a a calamitous concession. Mm. Um, The second half was much more even, but I, I think Arsenal ultimately, you know, deserve huge credit for what they did. It was a Liverpool team that were missing a couple of key players, Mo Salah, Dominic Soberslai, um, but so were we, right? Thomas mm-hmm. Partey still out, of course. Gabriel Jesus uh, not playing. Yeah, exactly. That was a bit of a, a nasty surprise, him not being available. But I think actually, you know, I'm not going to say that that necessarily worked for Arsenal, but it, it meant we went with the system, went with the shape, went with a lineup that had kind of performed pretty well mm. in the FA Cup game, or certainly a similar uh, 11 in the FA Cup game. And, uh, yeah, served the same purpose here. So this was a – I think it was a game where you could tell everyone knew uh, the stakes yeah. and the fans knew the stakes as well. You know, from before kickoff, the atmosphere was brilliant. There's been a lot of talk about the atmosphere this season. And yeah. You know, I think there was supposed to be a TIFO in the clock end that didn't happen in the end, and I know a lot of people were unhappy about that. Um, Do you know why it didn't happen? Or? I don't know. I don't know the right. ins and outs. I think Ashburton Army had something planned and it didn't come off. I presume there was a, a logistical reason on the club's part why they chose not to do it, but I don't know what that is. Um, but it had no ill effect, and I think that this atmosphere was, yeah, as as good as we've had at mm. any point. It's season. it sounded really loud even on TV. It sounded loud. Sometimes you you know it's a little bit extra when you're watching when the teams come out and and you can see the reaction of the the fans to the teams coming out on the pitch and you could certainly sense that yesterday and the team selection as we talked about Kai Havertz playing nominally up front but interestingly sitting in into a kind of midfield position a lot of the time, which left Liverpool not quite flummoxed. But, you know, this was clearly designed to, uh, in some way, stifle what Liverpool were were going to be able to do from an attacking perspective, right? So it, it's rare to see them um, as blunt from an attacking force or as an attacking force. I think it's it's quite something that in two games against them in recent weeks at the Emirates, the first halves, you know, they've really created almost nothing in both of those halves. Um, you know, and again, I think this comes back to how well Arsenal have been set up against Liverpool. In the FA Cup game, of course, there were chances that we didn't take. Can I ask you when Bukayo Saka almost got on the end of that Gabriel Martinelli cross. Were you thinking, oh, no, here we go again, to an extent? 
because it was a very good chance. I think when you look at it again, there's just a very slight nudge from Joe Gomez as he he sort of leans to head the ball, but it was a, a quick break down the left, uh, Raya throw, Martinelli outpaced Konate, uh, good cross in, but um, Saka couldn't quite get there, and you're sort of like, oh... It's not going to be another one of these days, is it? Yeah, no, I was worried about that. And I, I think everyone around me was as well. I mean, you know, in games like this, those kind of transition moments can be so important. You know, suddenly we had space. And I think one of the areas Raya's really improved since he came into the club has been in terms of those sort of claiming the cross and finding that quick release. Mm. You know, the early pass, the early throw. Uh, and this was a great throw, I think, to Martinelli. Yeah. Um, who was flying at Liverpool all afternoon. I mean, you know, the amount of sprints that he produced on the day was astonishing. The fact he kept it going as long as he did as well, I thought was really impressive. And it, it was a decent chance for Saka, maybe a little nudge, like you say, from the defender. But I did have that slight feeling of, oh, God, hope hope, that, hope we're not going to get a, re- a repeat here. Yes. I was a little bit worried. But then, of course, we got the goal... Uh, a couple of minutes later, uh, Liverpool had had a shot um, with Gakpo just before that. But it was a lovely move um, to create the space for, for Havertz, as we said. The the fact that he was dropping into midfield meant that the Liverpool, the two centre-halves, were just a little bit apart. And mm. um, it was nice play, nice, nice move, actually. Uh, Jorginho, I think, to Zinchenko. Zinchenko cut inside uh, to Odegaard. Odegaard, first time pass, sent Havertz in behind. It's a good save from Allison, although I don't think it's necessarily the most emphatic finish mm. from Kai Havertz, but thankfully it fell for Bakayo Saka, and he was there to to put it home to make it 1-0. Another, another big game, another big goal from him. Yeah, and he's... He's picked up a few of these little rebounds here and then. One of the things I really like about it, we've seen it from before, is just the quality of his first touch. You know, that that is essentially what gives us the goal. Yeah. Um, his ability to kind of kill it in a way that makes it easy for him to put it into the back of the net. Um, I think Havertz, yeah, it wasn't the best of finishes from him, but nice move, nice pass from Odegaard down the side. That little square in the midfield of Jorginho, mm. Rice... Odegaard and Havertz was obviously how we chose to set up and I thought it, it, it worked really well. I mean, Havertz, he did a lot right on the night despite not getting his goal. I, I do think uh, there is something to him in this number nine role. I, I always feel a bit more comfortable watching him there than watching him midfield personally. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I, I was glad he played his part even if I, I felt he probably should have scored. But yeah, Saka of course, takes the chance. Yes. Um, you mentioned Jorginho. Mm. I think this was his best performance in uh, an Arsenal shirt. And I think there's a perception of him as a, a sort of a guy who sits deep, who's not that mobile, who just sort of, sort of keeps it ticking, which I think is true to an extent, but I think it does him a disservice as well. I think some of the... Some of the, the passes that he makes into the opposition final third are, are not quite given the credit they they deserve. There was one really late in the first half when we were sort of camped on their box or the edge of their box and he picked the ball up and rather than go wide or recycle it again, played a pass into Martinelli, which was you know well blocked. I think it was Canate who came over. Martinelli got a shot away. Um, but all of his 
32 years of experience, big game experience was on display yesterday. Thought interesting as well. Mikel Arteta talked about how he'd been playing through uh, some kind of an injury. We don't quite know what the injury was. Um, but he was really, really important to the way that Arsenal played yesterday. And he was really important to the way that Arsenal played in the FA Cup game as well. I know that game didn't end the way we wanted to, but a big part of why we were so dominant in that first half was was Jorginho's presence in, in midfield there. So um curious as to, to what you think about his performance yesterday, how it looked in the ground, for example. I thought it was brilliant. I actually, do you know what? I came out the ground and I did my post-match video and I thought, you know what? I'm going to pick out Jorginho because I reckon everyone's mm. going to be saying... Rice was great, you know, Saka, Odegaard, something, something like that. And then, uh, so I did my video and I was like, personally, I thought Jorginho was really good um, under the radar. And then I went online and everyone was saying exactly the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was a really clever, like niche take. Uh, but he was just sort of inarguably good. Um, I think he's actually just been a really good signing. I think he is a very, very good footballer. And I think... He's proved a lot of Arsenal fans wrong. A lot of Arsenal fans did not want him when we when we bought him. And he said, uh, yeah, I mean, he was sort of an underwhelming signing. You can understand that, but I do think you're absolutely right that there is a value to what he brings to this particular squad because it's very young. You need a bit of balance in terms of experience and and you know a bit of an older head in the dressing room. And I, you know, apart from that mistake he had against. Um, Spurs this season you know I don't remember him ever having like a stinker or anything like that I think he's just been really solid and yesterday was was a you know was a really really impressive performance yeah and he plays a lot of big games you know Thomas Partey is never available right so that is definitely a factor in it but I seem to remember one of Jorginho's first starts for the club was home game against Man City it feels like every time we play City Liverpool United more often than not, Jorginho is on the pitch for a long portion of the game. And I think that tells you everything about the manager's trust in him. And I thought yesterday he demonstrated why, you know, superbly. I, I was surprised. I, from where I was sat anyway, I was expecting Jorginho to be kind of the deepest midfielder yeah. and rise further ahead. But it seemed like it was very much the other way around. Um Jorginho was like pressing really high. You know, I could see him sort of corralling Odegaard and Havertz and, you know, pushing them on to try and win the ball higher up. Um, and I think Rice was just sort of kept back almost as more of an insurance policy, you know, because of Liverpool's threat on the counter-attack. I mean, they played like a proper midfield pair at times. Yeah. And um, I have to say, I, I really liked it. You know, there was a... I was on handbrake off last week with Adrian Clark and we were debating it. You know, do you go with like a Havertz in midfield and a more attack-minded lineup, or do you go with the control of Jorginho and Rice together? I was always more in, in that camp for a game of this size. And yeah, I think he really, really delivered. Let's just hope he's not too badly injured. I know, you know, Mikel Teta spoke in praise of him playing, carrying a problem, but obviously we don't want that to be something that gets aggravated because with Partey out, we are a bit... Yeah. Like, 
Yeah, yeah, for sure. I thought it was it was noticeable how he was a guy popping up on the left-hand side where mm. often you would see Declan Rice. And I think that uh, you're right to say that, that Rice just being a bit quicker, a bit more mobile, a bit more physical in the middle, um, you know, when Liverpool do or did have moments of transition, you know, he's better placed to be able to, to, to deal with those. Mm-hmm. So look, it looked like we were going to go in comfortably 1-0 up, deservedly 1-0 up at halftime, but we conceded a, a really silly goal uh, just before the break. Um, I mean, it's in some ways a little bit unfortunate, but in other ways, very, very avoidable. Um, I saw Raya get a lot of criticism for this. Mm-hmm. But I have to say, despite being a big part of the uh, centre-halves union and um, you know, a huge fan of William Saliba, obviously, I think the onus is on him to get that ball clear. Mm. I think, you know, it doesn't look great for either of them. But if I'm in the dressing room and if I'm examining that tape and I'm I'm sort of looking to make that a learning moment for those players, I'm saying to William Saliba, look, it's 10 seconds before the break you have the ability to get that ball clear, to launch it downfield, and Arsenal can reset, and you avoid the potential for what happened if you just put your foot through that. Yes, I agree. I I, I actually think they're both at fault, personally. Um, I just think that's a situation where you've got to do the simple thing. And I think both Saliba and Raya are very accomplished and have kind of a natural affinity for doing the pretty thing at times. Mm-hmm. Um, but 10 seconds before the break, when you're 1-0 up against Liverpool and sure. you're in, in your own penalty box, is not the time <laughs> for the pretty thing. No. It's the time to get rid of it. Be industrial, uh, yeah. Yeah, I, th- I think so. That is the lesson. And I, I totally accept, like, Saliba. I'm sure, you know, part of the criticism Ryan gets is because, you know, He's, he, he wasn't the most popular signing and Saliba is the darling of the fans in some respects. And I think that probably makes the emphasis a little bit unfairly on the goalkeeper in, in that situation. But I think Saliba absolutely has an opportunity to just get rid of it. Mm-hmm. I think I, at the same time, I also think if that was happening on the edge of his own box, I'd be like, well, yeah, the keeper shouldn't be coming there, but it, it's sort of the edge of the six yard box. And I think, it's not hugely unreasonable to believe the keeper might come and collect that. Um, I guess it's miscommunication ultimately, right? Like somebody should be saying, yeah, this is my ball. And evidently nobody does. I almost think the presence of Gabrielle, I'm watching it back now. I think the presence of Gabrielle probably puts Saliba slightly off as well. It almost looks like Gabrielle's going to come in and clear it himself. Then he doesn't. It mm. looks like Ryan might come and collect it. Then he doesn't. Nobody does, but oh my God. When it went in the back of the net, I was like, I can't believe we've conceded a goal as bad as that. It was proper schoolboy amateur stuff. Yeah. Which is unlike us. Yeah, mostly. We have <laughs> we we do have it in our locker. I think it's sure, I think sure. it's fair to say we have it in our. Even locker. the way it comes in off Gabriel, I mean, it's a ha- it's hand, isn't it? Like yeah. it hits. I mean, it could it could have gone anywhere. It really could have gone anywhere, you know, uh, but it just sort of hit Gabriel's hand and and like if it didn't hit his hand, it probably just falls for an Arsenal defender to boot it clear, you know. Um, yeah, just just get rid of it. Yeah, you know, just get rid of it. Somebody. 
Um, there was a great moment. I can't remember. I was watching a clip last week. Maybe it was a clip of a game last season or something. I, I don't know what it was. But Arsenal were playing it out around the back um, mm. towards the edge of the penalty box. It could have even been the game last week. I don't know. Uh, it's just in my brain. And we're making short passes. We're under a bit of pressure. The opposition are pressing around. And you just hear this. Somebody picks up on, on, on the camera or on the microphones around the patient. You can just hear someone go, Get rid! And then and then we play a couple of passes and we're out and we're up the field and then everyone's like, yeah! I know, great, great, I know, great, great. I know. And, uh, I, but, and I, I don't mean to be that Philistine. No, no, no. But I'm agreeing with you that there are times where for all of that um, short passing, for all of the, the, the confidence that you want your team to have at the back, for all the the quality that William Saliba has on the ball, and we've we've seen it throughout his his Arsenal career, there are moments where you just need to fucking get rid of it, and that was one of those moments. Totally, and you know it's the context, isn't it? It's the time. Yeah. Um, as it was, it gave Liverpool a route back into the match, in which I think they'd been outplayed to be honest in that first half I thought I really thought Arsenal were, were excellent in the mm. first 45 minutes I'm not sure they got better than that personally I, I think that was when we were at our best in the game and yet somehow we went in level and you sort of felt like well Jurgen Klopp's team talk is perfect because he can say to them you've not been good enough but you've been handed a lifeline you're in the game now go on and seize momentum you know they must have been feeling a bit like maybe this is our year because We've not played well here. We've been gifted a goal out of absolutely nothing. And I think you saw that in them when they came out after the break. You know, that was their most dangerous spell, I thought, that first five or ten minutes after the half-time. And I I, I actually had the misfortune of being 30 seconds late for each half. And it was so interesting walking out from the concourse to the ground 30 seconds into the first half. It was like... like a wall of noise. It was like, whoa, this Emirates Stadium is like a cauldron today. Like it hasn't been probably, you know, for a Mm. few months. And then 30 seconds into the second half, I walked out exactly the same spot in the ground and it was quiet. And people had spent 15 minutes going, I can't believe we're just going to lead there. And there was a nervousness and a tension and Liverpool were suddenly playing with freedom they had an early attack, didn't they, in the in the second half? Like, they pretty much straight from kickoff, they came up uh, towards our box, I think, yeah. Yeah, and everyone was like, oh, this game has turned. And and it felt like that for, for a few minutes. Um, mm. I mean, what, what was interesting, I think what was interesting about that is is the fact that there were shades of the, the, the cup game, that we yeah. played so well in the first half, and then in the second half, Liverpool came out, made a slight tactical tweak, and were better. And I think that the same was true. It was evident yesterday that they'd um, they'd made a little bit of a tactical change. It made them better. There were a couple of chances. I think McAllister hit a shot wide. Luis Diaz hit a shot wide. They were more threatening than they had be uh, had been in the first half. And you're thinking, oh God, not this again, you know. Mm. But Liverpool then very quickly made a triple change. Yeah, which I don't. I don't really think that helped them. And I wonder if it helped us get a little bit more organized because they uh, they brought Robertson on. They had a sort of more traditional left back. Uh, they moved Gomez over to right back, did they, mm-hmm. I think? Um, uh, 
And the little bit of an advantage that they'd had from their change of shape, we were able to adjust to quite quickly when they made that triple change. Yeah, and you know what's funny about that? When they made that triple change, I thought, oof, it's quite a strong yeah. set of options to be bringing on at this point in a game. And I was sort of looking at our bench and thinking, are we going to match that? Are we going to go, you know, sub for sub with them and keep keep us as fresh as they are? I thought that might be a big moment. You know, particularly Nunes coming on. I know that he's really erratic with his finishing, um, but he is a threat. He's definitely a mm-hmm. threat and he's physically quite an awesome player and uh, difficult to live with. So I was thinking, oh, here we go, triple change. This could be the swing. But I agree. I don't think it helped them. I think they struggled to to sort of retain their rhythm after yeah. that. Didn't help them, of course, that they gave us a goal. Oh, oh, absolutely goodness. nothing. There was a, a shout for a penalty for Kai Havertz. I don't know if you've had a chance to I haven't to seen that back. back, actually. What did you think of it? It's it's a weird one because I think it probably shouldn't be a penalty, but you've mm. seen softer ones than that given. And look, if I'm going to apply my penalty rule, I, I wouldn't have been happy if that was given up the other end. The only thing I would say is that while Havertz's touch is not great, I think he should move the ball further away from McAllister. He sort of goes across McAllister as opposed to outside him and, and onto his left foot, where I think he would have been stronger. I don't think it's a good touch, but McAllister does not get any of the ball. He mm. doesn't get any of the ball. And, you know, you leave yourself open to um, punishment, I think, if if that is the case. But look, overall... I'm watching I, it now. I... It didn't. I was at that end, and I don't think any of us thought that was a penalty uh, in real time. Um, I, I don't think it is one, but I can see your argument at yeah. the same time. Like, I'm not saying we should have had one. I'm just saying that you've seen softer ones given, and if it, if, it was, if it was up the other end and that had been given against us, I'd have been pretty unhappy, you know? But, yeah, yeah, yeah. But thankfully, thankfully, it didn't matter. Now, Arsenal's goal... Uh, or Liverpool's goal, rather, the one that we gave them just before halftime was a was a serious um, cock-up at the back. I don't think anyone would have written the script that Liverpool would do something worse <laughs> in, <laughs> know, right? in the second half. And this is, this is way worse, you know? There's a sort of proximity issue with the Arsenal uh, concession, right? Where Ryan Saliba, it's very close to goal. Is the keeper going to come and get it? In this case... I'm amazed that a central defender with the experience and quality of Virgil van Dijk committed the, the cardinal sin of, of centre-halves, which is to, to let the ball bounce. Mm. You know, he easily could have headed that you know, up in the air, away into midfield again. You don't let it bounce because you open up the door for, for something like this to happen. There is a little bit of pressure from Martinelli. Is it a nudge? Maybe. It's no more of a nudge than Joe Gomez gave Bakayo Saka when he was trying to get on the end of that uh, cross from Martinelli in the first half. And then Alisson comes, doesn't get there, and it's a gift for Gabriel Martinelli. I was genuinely gobsmacked when I saw that because I was I was wondering how we were going to find a way through. I was wondering how we were going to get the goal. I did not expect the gift-wrapped present uh, on a silver platter that we got from Liverpool. No, I know. I mean, you know, Saliba and uh, Raya, you know, they 
probably aspire to be regarded in the same way as Van Dyke and Allison. They mm. are kind of the premium centre half and goalkeeper pairing in the Premier League, um, and this was an almighty cock up. When I watched their their equaliser, I was like, well, I think, you know, I think Allison probably comes and gets that. Does he? I mean, <laughs> he came to, what twenty two yards out of his own goal and completely missed it on this one. Um, certainly wasn't his night. I agree, Van Dyke. You know, cardinal error from him. But yeah, fair play to Martinelli as well because, like I say, mm-hmm. he chased everything in this game. He was the outlet time after time after time, and you know, it's a sort of hopeful punt forward really from Gabriel. Um, gets himself an assist out of it as well, which you don't see too often. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, Martinelli is the one who makes that run, who doesn't give up on it, even when he's second favourite. Sometimes you get your reward. And, yeah, it's quite fun watching the ball go in. Martin Odegaard is sort of chasing behind, you know, and he kind of realises what's happened early and sort of celebrates, gets a lovely celebration like, mm. as Martinelli strokes the ball into the empty net. But yeah, brilliant. And every time the uh, the replays of that goal were shown at the Emirates Stadium, we had a a big old chuckle to us. Yeah, I mean, you you could actually see Van Dyke having a look at the replay himself. Yeah. The TV cut to him and you're like, you know, what has happened here? What have I done? You know, what, how have we fucked this up? But look, you know, if, if Luis Diaz was being praised for his persistence, for the Liverpool goal, then Gabriel Martinelli absolutely deserves the praise for his persistence for for this goal. You know, you just put yourself in the position. You just never know. Like 999 times out of 100, Liverpool deal with that relatively comfortably, get the ball away, and there's no threat. Mm. But there's always the possibility that, uh, even with players as good as Van Dijk and, and Allison, that a mistake can be made or two mistakes. You know, the, the Van Dyke error was compounded by the Allison error, which is, you know, it makes it even more of a rarity. Yeah, absolutely. But, and Martinelli, you know, how's your luck as well? He, he got a deflected winner against Man City in the home game. Yeah. Chases this down, gets an open goal against Liverpool. Um, but as we've said so many times over the last couple of months, if you don't buy a ticket, et cetera, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. What's and the, he is someone who generally, you know, he will take that chance. So, um, yeah, just reward for, I thought, what was a really, really hardworking performance yeah. for him. If you're not in, you can't win. Um, yeah. So, look, he took Martinelli off. He didn't look that happy about it, but you can kind of understand it because, uh, you know, he had run himself ragged, I think, in, in this game. Definitely. Um, he, he was really, really good. The introduction of Trossard uh, is interesting. I've got a question about him, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to save that for the, for the second half uh, of the show. There was a red card for Liverpool late on. Uh, Kanate was, was sent off. Klopp was not happy about the red card, Mm. which I sort of understand. But when I look at the two incidents, the the first yellow card, right, is two players who are kind of grappling. And you see it all the time, a center forward backing into a central defender. But you can see very clearly that Kanate pulls him back by both shoulders. Like, Mm. I couldn't complain if an Arsenal defender had been booked for that. I will make the point, 
you know, if I'm talking about this red card, that Gabrielle, already on a yellow card, was a little bit lucky mm. uh, for a foul on Darwin Nunez in the about 90th minute, right in the center circle, which I don't think was too dissimilar from the one that Kanate was booked for first time. But the second yellow, no complaints. I don't know how anyone could complain about that. Havertz got the ball past him. He blocked him off. Very obvious uh, obstruction. You know, he put two hands up as well. So he's always going to get sent off for that. And that made those last couple of minutes just a little bit more, I won't say anxiety-free, but... But certainly when you're playing against 10 men, you feel like you can you feel like you can control things a bit better. Definitely. I mean, you know, that was a big moment. And I, I thought it was a, a, a red card. I thought it was two yellows. Um, yeah. I have to say, I think the referees, I found the referees sort of threshold for a yellow card kind of difficult to get a handle on. Like mm-hmm. There were some incidents where I thought, well, you could have booked him there maybe, and he didn't. And then he was very quick on anything that he perceives as time-wasting. Um, yeah, we'll talk about that in part yeah. two. And, and, and like I thought that seemed uh, odd, almost like, a, you know, maybe one of those directives has been issued from above. Um, but yeah, I, I, it was, I guess, a soft red card in the scheme of things, you know, but they're both yellow card fouls. So them's the rules, mate. Them's the rules. It left Liverpool light at right back. Of course, they put Luis Diaz there for a bit and Leandro Trossard made the most of it with a lovely turn, drive into the box. I don't really understand what Virgil van Dijk is doing defensively there. <laughs> I've watched it and watched it and watched it and it sort of goes against all the instincts you have as a as a defender. You know, He's actually still watching the replay of the second goal. <laughs> That's the thing. I mean... I sort of get that that maybe he's trying to time his interception, if you if you want to call it that. But he just allows Trossard the the space to run into and the ability to get a, a shot off away with his left foot. And he should know, having been on the end of a, a Trossard hat trick at, at uh, was it at Anfield? I can't remember if it was at Anfield. Was at Anfield last uh, season, yeah, yeah. And Trossard, I think, scored at least one of those goals with his left foot. So he knows that Trossard has the ability to finish with both feet. I thought his defending was very, very suspect there. Like I'd be very unhappy with an Arsenal defender if they if they did that as an opposition player was bearing down on goal. Yeah, I think that's the mistake he makes. I think he thinks, okay, I've got a right footed left-sided player here he's going to come inside and look for that angle um but which, Trossard, he, which he did the other day or the other week if you remember in the game against palace right there you go but but trossard is a very two-footed player uh and i don't think van dyke counted on that essentially um and just some fair play to trossard again takes on a shot from an angle that is not necessarily ideal gets a bit of luck Sometimes that's what's required. And I think, yeah, Alisson's day just compounded by the way that <laughs> skidded through his legs. Yeah. Um, but very enjoyable from an Arsenal perspective. Very enjoyable. And uh, th- those goals are always lovely, aren't they? You know, a 2-1 win would have been great. But a 3-1 win with a late goal, it just allows everybody to relax into the yeah. final whistle, if that makes sense. Yeah. And it feels much more emphatic as a scoreline, you know. 3-1. Um, do you, I mean, do you think it's reflective of the game, the performance, when you look at the stats? 
Arsenal 3.5 xG to 0.37 for Liverpool. Seven shots on target uh, for Arsenal. Just one shot on target uh, for Liverpool. Six big chances for Arsenal. Zero big chances for Liverpool. You know, is is this scoreline, despite the way some of the goals came about, more reflective of the overall performance and how good Arsenal were on the day? Or did we just take advantage of some, you know, iffy Liverpool moments? I think it is reflective. I mean, I think I think if this had been a 2-0 game, I don't think anyone could have had any complaints about yeah. it, really. Um, you know, I think there were two goals in the game that were kind of aberrations. And if you take those out of it, uh, I think you, you end up with a pretty fair reflection. And what's interesting is we didn't uh, dominate possession as we have done in a lot of games. No, 57% to Liverpool. Yeah, but but we really, well, in some respects, we beat them at their own game. We really capitalised on those transition moments. Mm-hmm. Um, we did almost score, by the way, a really beautiful goal through Jakob Kivior. Oh, my goodness. Like a, an end-to-end move, um, which ended with him popping up in, in the penalty box. I saw him in the build-up to this, and I saw him you know, taking up that kind of if you want to call it the inverted or the inside position that you often see uh, Zinchenko uh, take up uh, when he plays at left back, but he was he was sort of like in a false nine position almost. Sure. And then the cross Tommy came. Did it, didn't he? Yeah. Against Man City. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, he uh, popped up as a, as a good header. I think it was one of those where he was just kind of caught between it being a header. And a, and a volley, you know, the height of the ball coming in. But it was a good effort straight at straight at Allison. Imagine that had gone in. Kivior with a, <laughs> Kivior with a goal from there. I think there. it started with the keeper as well. And I think it started with one of those moments where Arsenal, you know, should have, could could have rather, just got rid of it and, and played their way out from the back. Um, but yeah, I think 3-1 will absolutely take it. And, and that thing of limit, limiting Liverpool to one shot on target, I think, I think that's what City had as well when they came in the Premier League game. Mm. Um, something similar to that anyway. And yeah, it speaks volumes about our our capacity to restrict what teams do, you know, with our work off the ball, our shape, our structure. Mm-hmm. Um, we are a very, very, very difficult team to break down. And and, and this is a really good win because I, I rate this Liverpool side highly. You know, I think with Salah and Soboslai, I think they would have been a, a different proposition maybe but I still think you look at the results they've picked up in recent weeks this is a team in Mikhail Teta called you know potentially the best form in Europe um, well the last game they lost in the league was in September and that was yeah. with nine men against Tottenham with that whole refereeing debacle as well you know Absolutely. so that was the only game they'd lost this season I think I'm right to say in the league uh, maybe there was one other one I don't know but yeah, yeah, so they, they, they've been outstanding. And uh, for Arsenal to, let me just double check that. Yeah, that was their only league defeat coming into this. Right. So to win this game when we had to win it as well, mm-hmm. we absolutely had to, is massive. Really, really massive. And we've obviously we had that, you know, very difficult spell uh, around Christmas time where we didn't get the points that... The performance is probably deserved, but we've responded, I think, really well to that. Yeah, I think so. And, and you know, the, Arteta talked about building a new connection again with the fans inside mm. the stadium. He mentioned that, you know, very specifically in the in the post-game 
uh, interview that he did with Sky talked about this game beforehand, how maybe it was one of those that could provide that kind of a moment. Because I know it's been different this season and we all, I think most people understand why, you know, because of the, the sort of the nature of last season and, and the unexpectedness of it. And, and now it's different. And now expectation causes a different kind of anxiety, a different kind of mood. I think that's been evident, not just in the stadium, but, you know, um, how Arsenal are discussed among fans this season as well. Mm. But this win, you know, on top of a win over Manchester City as well this season, I think it absolutely cements the credentials of this team, even if it isn't quite as enjoyable or as exciting as last season's team. And I, I, I'm really curious to see where this goes because you could be more open. You could be more swashbuckling. You could be a bit more adventurous. But do you win games against City and Liverpool if you are that? And is this the balance we're going to have to try and find as as fans where the lightning in a bottle of last season needs to be sort of put on the shelf, compartmentalized a bit, and we have to maybe acknowledge that in order to go a step further than we did, we have to do things a little bit differently. And it might not be quite as, as visceral or as emotional or as exciting as I've said, but ultimately the end goal is to do what we did yesterday in a big game against, you know, the best team in the league at this moment in time, top of the table, they're still top of the table, where we come out of it, deserved winners, and we have com almost completely, bar that one moment just before halftime and the couple of sort of pot shots that they had early in the second half, completely negated everything that they are good at, mm. everything. Like they're so amazing at pulling teams apart and making you play the game the way they want to play the game. And we haven't allowed it. And I think there is, I think there's a need maybe to, to acknowledge that this team is going to have to go about things slightly differently, but they did it yesterday through excellent tactics, a lot of hard work, some uh, moments of individual skill and quality. And in doing so, we have not blown the title race wide open, but kept ourselves absolutely in it. And that deserves credit because if that wasn't the case this morning, people would be going absolutely crazy that we have, you know, found ourselves eight points behind. So I think the Arsenal, for all Liverpool's frailties yesterday, deserve maximum credit for that performance and for that result. Yeah. And I think this is a game Arsenal had to win. Like, I know there were people saying, well, a draw, you know, keeps the distance the same and it's not the worst result in the world. And I, I know what they mean. But I think if Arsenal are serious about thinking they can win the league this year, I think they had to win this game. Because I just think it would have been very difficult to rein in that gap over Liverpool at any point in time yeah. without having an opportunity to take points off them again in the remainder of the season. Um, and they did. And I think, you know, it gives us a platform. I mean, I saw fixtures this week against Liverpool and West Ham and my mind was cast back to mm. last season. Do you remember those consecutive games yeah, we played yeah. at Anfield and then we went to West Ham and 
conceded leads in both of them. And it sort of felt like the beginning of the end. What's funny is we're in February now. Um, and it feels like it could be the start of something, you know, if we can get six points from this week. Um, and I, I do wonder as well, in terms of the atmosphere, I think it can be so important for us. Arteta spoke about that yesterday, but if the Emirates can feel like it did yesterday, it can be a really valuable tool for us uh, in the remainder of the season, not just in the Premier League, mm. but in the Champions League as well. Um, and we've spoken all season about the need to peak at the right time. <laughs> and maybe, maybe the same is true for the fans to an extent. You know, I do wonder if the first half of the season, you know, maybe it's not quite been white hot in there or red hot, we should say, being Arsenal. Um, but maybe we all know, consciously or unconsciously, that it's important the first half of the season, but it's kind of it's kind of prologue, right? It's kind of set up yeah. for the business end, the yeah. bit that really matters. And for me, this Liverpool game was kind of the playoff to determine whether we get to be in that. You know, whether we get to be part of the important bit, you know, the final third of the season, the real crunch time. Sure. And what's nice is that we are. And I think when we go to the next game at the Emirates, which is, uh, what is it? Is it Newcastle? Oh. Um, in a couple of weeks' time, I think I'm right in saying. 8 p.m. on a Saturday. An unusual, yeah. unusual kickoff time. But let me tell you, I think that'll be some atmosphere for that as well. Yeah. Um, and I think we might say that a few times between now and the end of the season. I think people are locked in now and they understand that this is where the stakes really come in. It's weird because it's the 5th of February, right? And um, yeah, it feels like, it feels like the, the title race for us really is only just becoming a, 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 a proper reality. I don't know if that makes sense. Like, it, no, it well, does, we were, yeah. we, we were very much in it before. We were you know, top of the league and all this, but it was sort of too early, too early, too early. Then it looked like we were out of it. And I think now, yeah, it, it's 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 there for us. Well, the, the, the challenge is there. Yeah, absolutely. And doesn't last season itself tell us how important the second half of the season is? Exactly. You know, lots of teams have have had a really brilliant first half of the season, but it's about what you do in the second half of this. How many titles have Manchester City won by just putting it together in the second half of the season? People talk, oh, are they the same? Are they good enough? Yeah. You know, is are they maybe falling away a little bit? And then bang, second half of the season, you know, where where the margin for error is is almost zero that is where they have been brilliant. And that's kind of the position that we're in now. The margin for error is still kind of zero, but you're there. And I do wonder if there is something in the way that we have been set up tactically, physically, and all the rest that has been designed for this team to maybe peak in the second half of the season. Fingers crossed. Let's hope so. Let's hope so. Okay, let's take a little bit of a break here because we've been going a while. We'll come back. Uh, plenty more to discuss. We'll do that in part two with your questions and more right after this. Hold up. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. It's a brand new year, and what better time to get going with that online store you've been thinking of? Those, I was there when Arsenal actually scored a goal t-shirts would fly off the shelves right now. And to get yourself up and running, you need Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way through to the did we hit a million order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms, and sell more with less effort with thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Sign up for a $1 a month trial period at shopify.com slash arsblog, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash arsblog now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash arsblog. Welcome back to the Arsecast Extra. This is part two of the show where we answer questions that you sent to us on Twitter, at GunnarBlog and at Arsblog, also on the Arsblog Discord chat server, which you get access to if you are an Arsblog member on Patreon. And um, I'm going to start from there, James, if you don't mind. This well, just quickly, Andrew, oh. Peter Kennelly said, do you think asking questions for the pod is taking it too far with the celebrations? Hmm. Good point. I think we should just sit here in in abject silence for the rest. (laughs) What, 32 minutes or so? We'll just sit here and contemplate the futility of existence in this like crazy world we live in. It wouldn't be made for a great pod, though, would it, Andrew? So, all right, we'll, we'll, we'll do some, reluctantly, we'll do some questions. Can we say thank you to everybody who has asked questions about uh, Sky and Punditry <laughs> and Celebration Police and Jamie Carragher and Gary Neville and all of those, like we've been inundated with those questions. I think we addressed it pretty well in the first half of the show. So I don't want to make it too much about them because I think there are more interesting things to discuss. There are better things uh, that we could spend our time talking about and you could spend your time listening about. Just know that we are very much aligned with many of your comments and, and concerns and frustrations about this kind of thing. But, you know, if you give it too much oxygen, are you not, you know, uh, part of the problem as well um, True. to some extent, you know? Uh, so- <laughs> that shit may have sailed for Maybe a case of sort of uh, bolting the door after the horses run away, whatever yes. that saying is. 
here's a question from Wishful Llama mm. on the Discord. And they say, goodly fucking morning, guys. Goodly fucking morning, Goodly fucking morning to you, you llama. Would you extend Jorginho's contract given it's due to expire at the end of the season? Uh, he's 32. He was 32 last, in, in December. Arsenal have an option. Yeah, they do. I would, actually. I think it's quite a straightforward one for me. Um, I definitely would. And I'm not saying that because he was man of the match yesterday. I thought that prior to that. I, mm. I would keep him around. What about you? Well, there's, there's three 30-plus central midfielders at the club. Yeah. I think it's fair to say that it comes down to a choice between two of them because I reckon at the end of his deal, Mohamed Elneny will, will move on. I don't think there's mm. anything uh, outrageous, you know, in, in saying that. I think his time at the club will come to an end. So they have to make a decision between Thomas Partey and Jorginho. It doesn't have to be one or the other, I guess. Both of them could potentially stay. But I think Arsenal need to address a significant midfield issue in the transfer market. And I think that only really leaves room for one of those players. Mm -hmm. For me, 100% Jorginho all day long. Mm. All day long. You know, he is 32, but he's, he's one of those players who was never particularly reliant on his pace anyway. You know, it's not like he's lost that lightning burst of pace that made him the effective player he was. And we've seen that happen with, with, with other players. When they get to this kind of age, their superpower is gone. His superpower is, you know, his experience, his reading of the game, his ability on the ball, his calmness in possession. I don't think he's going to lose much of that between now and the end of next season. So when you take into account all the, the considerations regarding... Uh, Partey, his injuries, etc. The option for me is is pretty obvious, and that's uh, that's Jorginho. Yeah, I think Partey's now been here three and a half years and missed something like sixty four games. Um, you know, the, the only thing about Partey is I, I I don't know how you move him on. You know, I've seen a lot of people this week say, "Well, it's time to sell Thomas Partey." Well, you need a buyer. Hmm. You do need a buyer, and he is under contract. You he's know, got a year left, so he'd be relatively, relatively affordable in that sense because he he will be into the last twelve months of his contract. And I think there's probably, I'd say there are clubs out there who will say, given he's only got a year left, and the fact that Arsenal would be quite willing to take a reasonable bid for him that there will be maybe a little bit more of a market than people expect. I know the injury thing might might play into it and it might put some potential suitors off and you could understand that, but there'll be someone out there who would take a, take a gamble and can probably get what looks like a, a, a good deal for Thomas Partey this summer. That would be great. Mm. That would be great. I, yeah, Jorginho would be definitely the one I would keep and I would supplement that with a new signing, definitely. Um, mm. Okay. Well, I've actually got another uh, Jorginho question, but why right. not? Why not? It's his day, right? Um, so these are kind of a, of a similar theme, actually. So Seat Wheat, or Sayat Wayat, I don't know, <laughs> says, um, has Georgie done enough 
while shown a dynamic to open up a starting berth for himself in more games and not just the bigger games. Um, and Joe Richmond says, how often will we see the rice Jorginho pivot from now until the end of the season? Is it a one-off against the big boys or a winning formula? Really good question. I mean, the thing that occurs to me is that if you start Rice and Jorginho, you potentially have a bit more on the bench to change things if you need to. Like, it's slightly easier to adjust your midfield. Like, Jorginho very rarely feels like a player you need to bring on at any point, unless it's maybe the last 10, 15 minutes of a game and you need some some experience on there. But I think it has worked in big games, and I think it might be something that he does use for, for certain big games as well. But it mm -hmm. depends on how physically able he is and how often he is able to play if he's got this injury thing that Mikel Arteta is talking about. Maybe it's just something that's a bit uncomfortable, you know, rather than being a serious injury or, or something he runs the risk of, of aggravating. But um, I'm not averse to it at all, I have to say. I think it functions well. We talked in the first half of the show about how what Arsenal did tactically completely negated what Liverpool are strong at. And I think that will be pretty useful in, in some of the games against um, against some of the other teams in, in this league, depending on how much you feel you need to address that um, in the opposition, you know. But when, when a guy comes in and plays that well, I think it gives, you know, I think Arteta likes Jorginho anyway. We know he's got faith in him and trust in his ability. But I think when you can play, um, when he's played as well as he has in, in a game against Liverpool like that, I think it just means he will get more chances. So, yeah, I think we'll see it more often. I think he'll get plenty of minutes, yeah. I think sometimes in the role we saw yesterday, I think sometimes he'll be the deeper partner in the midfield and, and Rice will be released to get further ahead. Um, I think he'll play minutes off the bench in different circumstances where we're trying to control things a bit more or just can't get our passing games going. Um, I think he's going to play a big role between now and the end of the season. Um, I seem to recall that during the run-in last year, he sort of slightly disappeared a little bit and there were games where I kind of expected him to feature and he only got a handful of minutes. Um, and I remember reflecting on that as potentially a bit of a mistake. I think his experience in those crucial months mm. towards the end of the season could be a really, really valuable thing. Um, so, yeah, I, I expect him to be heavily involved, but I think it will be kind of a horses for courses approach. You know, Arteta's got a lot of different options at his disposal. Um, well, he's got some different options at his disposal, um, and I think he'll pick the team accordingly. Mm. You mentioned, we mentioned Thomas Partey and his lack of availability. Yeah. Hale and... Harula on the Discord says, Goodly morning. James Benge tweeted, or is it X'd? No, it's tweeted. We won't, we won't acknowledge the, uh, the X-ness. He said he tweeted the following yesterday. Since joining Arsenal last season, Gabriel Jesus has started just 37 of 60 Premier League games. Is fewer Premier League minutes as a starter in that period than Ivan Tony. It's hard to fulfill your potential as a team when the guy who changed your world, in inverted commas, is so frequently missing. Care to comment? Wow. I mean, you know, he had one very long layoff 
from mm. a knee injury, but there have been subsequent absences. We sort of hear related to that. Michalotis will often sort of say, oh, you know, well, it was the same knee or, you know, there were some yeah. concerns. It is a worry for sure. He, he's not available often enough. I think when he has been available this season, he's not been scoring goals often enough. And so I think, you know, it would be no surprise to anybody for me to say, as well as central midfield, centre forward is an area that Arsenal will have to look at in the summer. I just think it's necessary. And I don't think it will mean Jesus doesn't have a part to play and won't play games. I think he'll play loads of games, but he might not play every game at centre forward from next season. I can see a situation where somebody comes in and, you know, he's playing on the flanks a little bit more. And I actually think that'd be a really healthy thing sure. for the squad and for our for our options and our attacking diversity. I think that is kind of the next step to take. What what do you think of those of those numbers? I mean I do think it is heavily informed by the the big injury that he yeah. had, right? And it is still a relatively short or small sample size. It's only a season and a half or a little o- over a season True. and a half that he's been here. Um, but I understand, I understand the point that he is, you know, our center forward, our number nine. And ideally you want him available a lot more often than, than he has been. But I think it is very much tied to what we need to do in the summer because everyone would say Arsenal needs something a little bit different. They're going on and on about it yesterday on on Sky. You know, oh, if only they had the killer up front, you know, mm. which I think, again, is is sort of verging on, on lazy as well. Um, like, it's not to say that, that Arsenal couldn't do with that kind of player, but the time he, he said it, I think it was when that Jorginho pass came in to Gabriel Martinelli, who turned and shot first time, and Neville was like, oh, if only they had that killer. But it was just a piece of really good defending. I don't know that any other forward could have done much more than Martinelli did in that situation. So it wasn't sort of like a lack of getting a shot away, something we have been a little bit guilty of. But I think if you try and consider next season's team, like imagine the center forward that everyone wants. I don't know who it is or who it's going to be. So I don't want to put a name on it. But if you have that different player, if you have that, you know, center forward, more physical, perhaps a bit taller, gives you a different option in the air, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then you think about what else we could do in the forward line. Gabriel Jesus feels kind of fundamental Mm. in a way. Like he can play left, he can play right, uh, right, he can play center forward. He's easily good enough to play some games if Bakayo Saka needs a rest. He's easily good enough to play some games if Gabriel Martinelli needs a rest. It's not quite like, oh, well, if Saka doesn't play, is Reese Nelson quite what we need? You know, so I think the need for something else at, at center forward is obvious. But I would be loath to sort of go down the road of well, we need to get rid of, we need to get rid of Gabriel Jesus. This is not anywhere near a similar situation to the Thomas Partey one for me. Partey is a lot older as well, so uh, I, I think it's possible that the Jesus doesn't play as many games at centre forward. But perhaps in doing that, we have a more available Gabriel Jesus for for next season and, and seasons ahead. Yeah, I mean it's interesting. We had a question 
from Parash Yagatia who said, is Kai Havertz our best option in the false nine? Um, and I don't know the answer to that question specifically, but watching the game yesterday, I was thinking that sort of, if we consider Havertz more as a striker, I do think in a funny way, it opens up a lot of attacking options for us. You know, I know that he'll, he'll, he'll probably play games in midfield between now and the end of the season and he'll have a role to play there and he's done okay there a lot of the time. But if you, you know, if you essentially in your mind move him as a striking option, then suddenly, well, we've got two centre-forwards that we could play and Jesus could play out wide and we could have one of Martinelli or Saka on the bench. I do think in this run-in, I mean, I've sort of banged this drum all season long, but I, I think Havertz's best position is up front. And I think we should be using him there more to create that yeah. depth and variety in our front line. I, I, we had some questions about Havertz, actually. Uh, one right. from Not That Glazer. Uh, how do you assess Kai's performance during the match? He says, did he lose his head? Did he follow the match plan? Don't quite understand that. He did get a bit touchy towards the end. Uh, and Deza underscore VDV. Why can't Havertz finish? He feels like he does everything but that. His shots can look a bit tame. What does that mean for where we should play him? He did look good today, apart from the shot that led to, to Saka's goal. And, and did, I, I'm sort of with Havertz, I could see a lot of what he brought to the team and the tactical plan yesterday. The the movement to get him behind for for uh, the shot that led to Saka's goal was excellent. He was quick. The defender wasn't catching him. There were moments he got down the side as well. We talked about the one with the, with the penalty, but there was one in the first half where he got down um, the inside left channel and he he stood up across, which is really easy for Allison. I think it was a poor a poor cross into the middle. He was maybe looking to go back post to, to Bukayo Saka. You know, there is quite a lot that he does that is really useful, but when it comes sometimes to that last action, that last pass, the shot, it's not quite where you where you want it to be. Is that something he's ever going to get on top of? Because, you know, um, if we're giving everyone credit for the way we played yesterday, he's a big part of that. Yeah, I'm going to make a comparison now that's really unflattering, okay? Okay. <laughs> but I don't mean it in that way. Because this player became a joke at Arsenal, right? But there was a time where he first came in where he brought a different dimension to the attack and really um, provided a platform for the skillful, creative players around him. Right, that disclaimer is out the way. Okay. When Arsenal signed Marouane Chamac from Bordeaux, <laughs> <laughs> listen, there was a time, I remember I was writing about Arsenal at the time, as were you, mm -hmm. where he was pretty good. He was pretty good at certain things. And they were providing a focal point his diagonal runs were really good. He could combine, link, play with people, offered a threat in the air. Could he shoot? Absolutely not, right? <laughs> like, he scored a few goals, but they were usually scuffed in or headers or, you know, quite simple chances that Scrappy broke his Scrappy ones, way. yeah. Scrappy ones. But he ran that front line really well for a period of time. 
Havertz's performance yesterday reminded me of that early Shamak. And, and listen, it's not a great endorsement, but there is a real value to that in a team. And he was an outlet. You know, his movement into some of the channels was really good. For example, in the build-up to our first goal, and maybe even the penalty appeal, you know, his, his ability to kind of spin in behind and mm. get, you know, run at Liverpool, give them problems in the in the channels between their centre-halves and their full-backs, I thought was really impressive. Um, I thought it was sort of a very unselfish centre-forward display. And I think that is what it's going to be from him because he's kind of not and never has been a great goal scorer. I don't think he's the answer in the long term, but I do think he's an option that we should embrace. And I think he is his best games for Arsenal. For me, the way I see it have been when he's played in this position. Um mm. I agree yeah. with that. I agree with the fact that he's been best when played up front. Um, I think there is a different dynamic with him up there. He's quicker than people think. Yeah. His movement is good. He does put himself about. He does win headers. He does win tackles. I think Arteta likes what he brings to the team from that perspective. But of course, we are judging him on a price tag. We're judging him on the fact that, you know, he's come in to replace you know, uh, perennial fan favorite Granite Xhaka, who everybody loved uh, throughout his time at Arsenal, you know, and and what, what, what Granite Xhaka produced. And you're looking for an output, an end product that's commensurate with the price tag and the, um, and the position that he's been played in for, mm. for most of the season. But I'm not, like you, I'm not sure we're ever really going to get that, but it doesn't mean he can't be a useful, if I call him a useful tool, that sounds almost like damning him with fainter praise than 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 you've given him with, with the Shamak comparison. But, you know, sometimes you need a player like that in your squad. And um, I, I enjoyed most of his performance yesterday, apart from those bits where I think, you know, a different kind of player in some of those positions could perhaps have made more of, of the situations. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah, totally. And I think for sixty-five million, and with it's partly because of Havertz's reputation. I think sort of we all anticipated that we were signing kind of a flair player, um, and that isn't seemingly what we've got. We've got like a very hard-working utility guy at this point in time. Maybe we'll unlock uh, that other dimension to his play in the future, but I, I think that's not something we can bank on and guarantee. Mm -hmm. And I know the Shamak thing is sort of, I know people will scoff at that and it, I know it feels almost derisory, but there have been centre forwards who weren't great finishers or great goal scorers who have been really invaluable to teams, mm -hmm. right? You know, I, Emil Heskey would be an example. He was like a brilliant, brilliant team player, but just not a prolific goal scorer past his like 24th year. Um, you know, there have been others who can run the line. Danny Welbeck is maybe an example, someone who wasn't a great finisher, but had tremendous energy and intelligence and unselfishness and work ethic. And he brought, who made teams look mm. fluid through the way he played the game. Um, yeah, I just think 
I think that's what we've got at the moment with Havertz, and I think that's how he's best deployed. But um, whether we'll ever see kind of the other potential in him come out, I just don't know at this point in time. Mm, no, I think when a, when a player gets to how old is he? He's twenty four now. Yeah. I mean, it's not impossible. Some players can develop things later in their career that they don't have in the early stages. But you know, I would be surprised. But I don't, I don't um, doubt that he's going to be a useful asset for us between now and the end of the season. That he does give at least a bit of depth uh, at centre forward, some depth in midfield. I don't know if he's ever going to win people around the way he or Mikel Arteta or whatever might like, but you never know. A few goals, a few assists between now and the end of the season and, and the um, the narrative around him could change. So let's hope he can, because I, I do think ultimately when I look at him, I, I, I think there is more. You can do more. You can deliver better. I think you can. Um, it's just whether or not we're going to see it. It's just things like... Yeah, and, and listen, I thought he did well. I thought he largely did really well against Liverpool and it was an important part of it. But it's just his sort of the speed of his footwork, the way he strikes the ball. Uh, it doesn't convince, no. you know, as someone who's going to be a kind of devastating goal scorer at all. No, that's true. Um, yeah, and that's where we are with it. All right. I think it's your question. Um, let's have a look. Well, I'm happy to. I'm happy to pass to you given okay. that most of mine are about Jorginho again or uh, Jamie Carragher where was the one that I saw about Jorginho that I just wanted to read out because I thought it was quite funny it could have been on Twitter boom 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 uh, yes it comes from MJ Furtek who's at MJ Furtek uh, and he says to replace 12 million Jorginho Chelsea spent around 300 million on Enzo Caicedo and Lavia there is no question this is just hilarious to read out loud. Wow. I, yeah, I mean, is, that is an extraordinary amount of money, isn't it? And it is for a trio of Flamini's. <laughs> so, I mean, look, Arsenal will definitely be feeling good about their, their decision to, to go with Rice in the end. I still think they, they're good players, yeah, but Chelsea are just an absolute mess. and Hilarious mess. I, I, what's brilliant about the situation, by the way, is that Mauricio Pochettino has charmed the English football press so absolutely. I mean, you've never seen a trophyless manager um, praised like he was during his spell at Spurs. And I don't think they'll go for him for some time. He's a real darling of the media, mm. um, which is brilliant because he's doing a terrible job. You know, whatever about the media, some Chelsea fans are certainly not happy. I was, we were asked for a bit of potch oh, yeah. out, so I'd opened up a few just to see. Oh, really? Just Great a couple. News. I like the guy who just replied to the Miami Heat Twitter account, and it's just hashtag potch out 10 times. <laughs> I don't know why he's replying to the Miami Heat. Uh, there's another one here. Uh, it says, I rarely do it, but fuck it. Sack that bastard today. Potch out. <laughs> bastard. All in all in one word. Uh, let me ask you this from uh, Widhaprasa on Twitter, mm. who's at Woo, W-E-W underscore A-F-C. 
He said, do you love that Nunez-Gabriel moment from yesterday? Have you seen Which that back? moment, Andrew? I, I don't know if I've seen it. Tell right. me. Right. So Nunez in about the 88th minute, something like that, cuts inside the Arsenal box and blasts a shot. Blasts it wide and high where he had to go like across the box, really, I think. That was the that was the uh Right. Oh, I do remember that. That was yeah. the thing. And Gabriel sort of grabs him around the head and laughs a bit, and Nunez grabs Gabriel around the back of the head and sort of has a bit of like ah it was just quite funny, I thought. I enjoyed that. <laughs> <laughs> I have an actual question though. So what about this one okay. from uh Callum, who says a very goodly morning to you both. Goodly morning. Any thoughts on how Trossard has developed a closer role? I thought he was amazing at adding control and killing the game against Forrest and similar again yesterday, even before the goal. And he says, closer like close a door, not like the Nine Inch Nail song, which sure. is closer. Or like the German striker Miroslav. <laughs> I, yeah, I think um, he was excellent yesterday in that cameo. Mm. I mean, obviously he scored and I love the little bit of skill to get away from his man on the touchline. He produced a similarly impudent piece of skill a few minutes before and, and the ball was ruled to have gone out. I don't know if yeah, you remember yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was brilliant footwork there and I thought it, was, it seemed quite harsh. From my view anyway, the ball looked in. Um, let's not get back into all that. We've been there before this season. Mm -hmm. um, I think it... I, th <laughs> I think he had a sticky period, Trossard, in December when I think the team did generally and I think the attack did generally. Whatever was happening was kind of catching at that point in time. And, and everyone, I think, sustained a dip in form. Mm. But I think by and large, you know, I spoke about Jorginho being a, a good and effective signing. I think he has also been a really good and effective signing. And something that's forgotten about him often, maybe because he's ever so small, is that he's also one of our most experienced players. Um, I think he's 29, maybe. Mm -hmm. And so, and he's played you know, a lot more football than most of the guys in our first team. Um, and I think that experience coming off the bench can be really valuable. And I think maybe as well, because he's that little bit older, because he's probably past his absolute prime, maybe he's a bit more willing to embrace uh, that sort of role and sort of recognise that doing that at a club like Arsenal is probably about a, as good as he can expect at this yeah. point in his career. Um, and I think having players who recognise that and accept that, and I think Jorginho would be another, is really, really valuable for a manager. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I had some issues with him in that period where, you know, the, the set-piece deliveries that he's capable of um, doing much better with were, were so below par. But I think you're right to say that there was like a collective dip in form. Mm. Um, but he's he was really good against Forrest when he came on. That's a big goal yesterday. Um, I haven't looked up... Uh, his stats for this season in terms of goals and assists. I must just do that now. They're pretty good. Yeah, I, think I think they are, yeah. Uh, Leandro Trossard. Particularly with the boom. goals. I think his, his, his assists was the story of the second half of last season. I mean, I think he got it almost into double figures, didn't he, in, in half a season or something mm. mad like that. Eight goals um, and two assists in all competitions. So he's heading towards double figures for goals. Yeah. For a player who, 
has only started seven Premier League games. Mm. You know, seven starts in the Premier League, five goals. It's a very, very decent return. And, you know, he, he, he you need players like that in a title-winning squad. Mm-hmm. Um so yeah, I, I, I'm I'm really happy with him. I think he's great, and uh, I think he's got tons of ability. And he's one of the. I mean, he got a bit of luck yesterday, but he is one of the better finishers in the group for sure. Yeah, he absolutely is. Uh, what about this one? Mm-hmm. Uh, Johnny Bow on Discord said, "How impressed were you with Kivior in the second half? I thought he looked super composed and comfortable on the ball. Best game I've seen him play for us, and a big moment to come into a game of this magnitude." Yeah, I was going to ask you that actually because I know you've you've um, expressed some doubts about yeah. about Kivior. Um, clearly, the introduction at halftime yesterday was um, was because of an injury to Zinchenko. It was something to do with his calf. And he hasn't always looked that comfortable at uh, at left back, but I thought he did well yesterday. Um, he wasn't quite as involved on the ball as you would expect an Arsenal left back to be. Only 12 passes mm. in the 45 minutes, and he completed those passes at, at something like um, 75% accuracy, right? So he gave a few away, but that can happen when you're at fullback and you're putting the ball down the line a bit. But uh, I I thought he was good. I thought he was good. I was surprised he popped up for that chance. Of course, we already discussed that. But there is perhaps a, a, an element of him feeling a little more comfortable in the team now. I know there were a lot of rumors about him going, but I think he's going to be, um, he's going to be a useful uh, component to this squad between now and the end of the season. Tommy Asu will be back, of course. Um, good timing. If Sinchenko is injured, Tommy Asu coming back because Japan were beaten in the Asian Cup, so he should be available for our next game if we need him. But uh, yeah, I thought he was good. It's a high-pressure game. Didn't look out of place. Got his tackles in. Um, looked pretty comfortable and maybe the kind of the kind of cameo he needs to to take a little step forward. Yeah, I think he was good as well. Um, it is a difficult game to sort of immediately adjust to the tempo of coming in at half time. Thought he did that well. I think that we can afford to have him at left back if we have that double pivot of Jorginho. With Jorginho right. there, yeah. I mean, yeah. He, he started in the FA Cup game, let's not forget, at exactly. left back, and it was Jorginho in midfield as well. So there, there is a connection there. I think if had we not had Jorginho on the pitch, we would have felt the absence of Zinchenko more more keenly. Mm. Um, so I think it's a balancing act. But on the defensive side, yeah, he was solid enough. He got forward at times, relatively comfortable in possession. I thought it was a, certainly one of his better performances and a big, big moment for him. You know, it's hard when you're on the outside of the group and you're a rotation player and you're not getting a ton of opportunities to be part of a game like this against Liverpool, a big win to play a full 45 minutes. I think that will help him. I think it will make him feel more integrated, more part of things and might do something for his confidence as well. So yeah, yeah, I think it was a positive day for him for sure. All right. Just before we uh, wrap things up, I had a few questions about this and I, I think this is a fascinating one because Ben White was booked in the 30th minute, 31st minute. And yeah. I tweeted about this 
and said, that's a fucking ridiculous booking. That's nonsense, getting booked for time-wasting in the, in the 30th minute. But I read the replies, and there was quite a schism, if you, if you can believe that. People um, you know, with different opinions online, it's crazy. But there were, I saw one in particular who was going, I, I've never actively wanted an Arsenal player to get booked before, but Ben White makes me feel like that. He wants to see Ben White get booked. So uh, Arsars Baby on the Discord said, is it just me or are we more aggressively punished for time-wasting than other teams or should I take this tinfoil hat off? And in relation to Ben White, there were questions about, you know, how long he takes for throw-ins. I was watching yesterday. There was maybe it was just before, not long before he actually picked up that booking, which was um, not taking a free kick. I still think it was ridiculous. I still think it's really harsh to book him because it's in the referee's um, uh, what you call it. He can just add the fucking time on if someone is time wasting. If it's completely egregious, by all means, you know, yellow card. If it's the ninetieth minute and. You know, we've all been there and seen those. I just think that in this era, if the edict is to uh, add the time, I'll just add the time on. It shouldn't be a double whammy for the player in question. But I was watching Ben White take a throw in and, and like he was looking for movement and there just wasn't the movement for him to take a throw. So what does he do? Either hang on and try and find somebody or wait for somebody to move or does he just throw the ball away? You know, I think I'm I'm sort of more on Ben White's side in this than many people are. So how do you view that? Yeah, I thought I thought it was quite harsh, I have to say, uh, watching it in real time. I think it is tricky with the throw-ins. I mean, you're kind of reliant on the other players yeah. giving you an option. Yeah. Uh, and it's them who's dragging their heels and not getting into space. It's not like there are throws on and he's ignoring them. It's that he's waiting for the moment, right? Um, yeah, I thought they came down pretty hard on Arsenal for time-wasting yesterday, particularly at points in the game where I was like, I don't even think there'd be any benefit to them time-wasting here necessarily. Um, I, I feel like it was sort of, a, you know, the eyes of the world are on the game. This is an issue we want to police let's give out some bookings for time-wasting. Um, mm. That was my interpretation of it. I I don't share the frustration with Ben White, but interesting that it exists. Yeah, know? yeah. Uh, like, I, I've never seen anyone say, I want to see an Arsenal player booked. Um, it's just that seems really weird to me that you would want an Arsenal player booked. As a thrower, you are completely dependent on the movement of those ahead of you. And I, I think part of why... Ben White does take a long time with the throws is because the movement from our players at those moments isn't always good enough. Yeah, totally. Totally, I agree. And also, that is an opportunity for a breather. Like, they probably are cynically saying, well, the ball's gone out, you know. Yeah, take a few seconds. 20 seconds, take a breath. Then we'll make Mm -hmm. our little darting runs to receive the ball. Um, And unfortunately, it's the guy holding the ball who gets the booking. Yeah, I think that's more the case than Ben White particularly being at fault. But, you know, he is a guy with a uh, a casual demeanour at times. I can see that. Um, you wouldn't put it past him being cynical and wasting time, you know. But in in the case of yesterday's game, I thought that was really, really harsh. You know, to, to, to book him after half an hour for, like, time wasting. And he wasn't even standing over the, the free kick. And he was just looking around to see, right, who's moving? What am I going to do with this? There's Liverpool players really close to him. And then all of a sudden he gets a yellow card. 
Yeah. Thought that was harsh. Yeah, I think I'm with you on that one, Andrew. Um, as Alan points out, though, on the Discord, he said, I wanted to get your thoughts on Ramsdale pointing to his wrist, shouting, hurry up to Anthony Taylor from the subs bench when Anthony Taylor was uh, had problems with his microphone or his, you know, his bits. Yes, um, that, I was very that was funny. very I think funny. that was moments after he'd booked Ben White, basically. Um Mm. And, and Ramsdale was basically <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> telling the referee to stop time wasting. Yes. Which is quite funny. It was funny. There's one final thing I wanted to do, and this is quite amusing as well, because I was watching your On the Whistle video. Yeah. There was a lot of interaction. Yeah. With uh, with fans passing <laughs> by. Was, yes. Fans Close and, quarters. Fans and family members. Um, some shouts of magpies, some random kisses, and a lot of people shouting, uh, let's do this mm-hmm. uh, from a distance. And it reminded me of something. And, and John Larkin on the Discord also was put in mind of this, which is quite funny because I'd made a, a, an audio clip. Do you remember the episode of Father Ted? <laughs> when, I know what you're going to say. Yeah. When... Dougal and Father Ted spot Victor Meldrew uh, at, at, I think it's uh, the the very dark caves, something like that, and they spot him. And they have this little bit of an interaction, which I'm going to play now, but I've, I've sort of uh, repurposed it for, for you. So this is what it is. Do you know what he'd love? Well, he'd love it if somebody came up to him and said his catchphrase. Oh, yeah, Ted. He'd love that. He should definitely do that. Should I? Oh, yeah. I'd say no one ever does that to him. He'd think you're hilarious. You know, this is one of these times when I'm absolutely 100 million percent sure that you'd be doing the right thing. I can safely say you definitely, definitely won't regret doing that. I'm going to do it. Brilliant. Will I? Yeah, go on. Hold the camera. Listen, I appreciate all the all the love. Um, Although I am potentially going to have to start recording those videos somewhere else because I think uh, the Les Dudis bombing is becoming. uh, It's interrupting my thought processes. That's for sure. You brought it on yourself. You can't put a catchphrase out there in the world and then not expect people to bellow it at you in the wake of a a, a very good three-one win over Liverpool. That's true. As long as they pay their ten p, you know what I mean, (laughs) for the trademark infringement. By the way, I should say, um, as of today, uh, you can buy yourself a a beautiful Les Dudis T-shirt from (laughs) lesbydis.com. If you visit Les Bydis, L-E-Z-B-U-Y-D-I-S.com, there is an array of merchandise uh, available to you. Oh, my God, there is as well. It's a real thing. It's a real thing. Oh, my God. Bruise banana, let's do this. Yeah. I mean, it's quite astonishing, the array of uh, merch that has been created um, mugs, hoodies, mugs, t-shirts, hoodies, water bottles, baby grows. <laughs> <laughs> you uh, stick your baby so in it. Let's do this, baby. Come on, get sprouting. I'm gonna, I gotta get Rocky modelling that. I guess. Um, but yeah, no, thanks. It is lovely having people come in the videos. Mm. I think. Do you know what? It does interrupt the flow, but it does give you a flavour of for sure the live experience. So I do enjoy uh, that aspect of it, um, even if. I do find it quite distracting when people run up and, and kiss me quite intensely. Hey, it is a small price to pay for uh, beating Liverpool. Like if someone offered you that 
before the game, would you not take it? Would you not say, I will make that sacrifice? I absolutely would. There you go, then. It was very much worth it. All right. Well, look, we had better leave it there. Get this podcast out uh, to all of you guys. Thank you, as ever, for being with us. Tomorrow morning, we will have an episode of The 30 for you, looking back at all the weekend's uh, Premier League action, including tonight's game when Manchester City take on Brentford. Come on, Brentford, do something. Um, that would be that would make it quite fun, but there have been some, uh, some interesting results. So join us over on Patreon for that, patreon.com forward slash arsblog. For now, thanks so much, and we will catch you on the next one. Bye-bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.